Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. You know, we talk a lot on this show about how people who never thought much about the space program end up going to space. I mean, basically, that's the theme of the show. Less obviously, but I think still important to our theme, is that going to space changes your perspective, even if you don't leave the ground to do it. And that's what today's show is going to be about. I'll be assisted in that discussion by two, let's call them unlikely, Terranauts. In the interest of full disclosure, I'm quite happy to take credit for turning Karis and Hugh into Terranauts and quite happy to say how glad I am that I did. I think the rest of the story is best left to them. So without further ado, Karis Goodall and Hugh Scully, welcome to Terranauts. Hi, glad to be here. Thanks, Ian. So, so um, maybe just I'll just get you to quickly introduce yourselves before we get into the story. So, uh, Karis, maybe if you want to go first. Yeah, uh, I'm a PR pro, I, I suppose, and uh, have spent most of my time in, in startups and, and now am a CMO at a startup called Innerspace that does indoor location. And Hugh. I am a currently a, a managing director of Big Red Oak, which is a marketing comms company based out of Toronto with a background in PR. And then before that, journalism, which is relevant to this case, I think, because it's the reason that Karis and I are sitting here. That's right. So so a couple of uh, PR media uh, professionals, um, not the most likely of people to have ended up going to space. Um, but that that is what we did together. So um, maybe maybe I'll, I'll get you to talk about how our paths crossed and how I dragged you into the space program. Sure. So um the year was 2005, and you've talked about it before, and I think probably a number of people who listen to your podcast know this, but Return to Flight happened in 2005. And Karis and I were working together in Ottawa at a PR company called High Road Communications. Uh, I was running the office at the time, and you were a couple years in to the no, profession. No, I, I hadn't even graduated from college yet. And we put you on the account? Yes. Oh, <laughs> little, little did you know, Ian, yes. that I didn't even have to never, yet. It was not obvious at all. The year was 2005, and we were a very savvy communications there company. There you go. Working with only the best. And NEPTEC, where you were, Ian, obviously, uh, issued an RFP in need of public relations, media relations, message development, uh, and strategy around all that with the notion that um, with return to flight and the contribution that you expected to be making, you'd be able to attract media attention to the business. Um, and that was the 3D camera that was going to be going up on the flight um, to scan, sort of the last line of, of defense, if you will. It's the way that we talked about it at the time. What I'll just say is, uh, yeah, so to be clear, we're talking about um, return to flight of the space shuttle after the Columbia accident um, because yes. a piece of, of foam um, fell off the external tank when the, the shuttle was launching. It put a hole in the wing of the space shuttle. Uh, and NEPTEC, uh, one of the things that NEPTEC ended up doing was making a camera that would help inspect the outside of the space shuttle to make sure that 
uh, there wasn't any damage the next time when they wanted to to come home. Um, obviously, it was a big deal for a little company. Neptech was probably about 80 or 90 people at the time. It was a big job. Uh, mm-hmm. And we wanted to make sure that uh, the story got told well. Uh, and so we decided it was time to to um, avail ourselves of the services of some professionals. And and as you say, we, we put out a call and, and High Road ended up being the people that we went with. So um, maybe you can tell me a little bit more about your first impressions when you when you walked into the space business for the first time. Um, you know, what? how did it appear to you? So you're asking my first impression. Um, I think it was, I think it took a little while to actually wrap my head around it. Not that I can't understand the importance of space and everything, but when you come from outside of it, you have a, well, you have an outsider's perspective and in that sense, a, a general citizen and not having any background in it. Um, but a background in technology to a degree you don't map it all together right away. And I thought that was something that when we worked with you, you did incredibly well for us to sort of explain the gravitas of what NepTech was doing um, and what its contribution could and had been, not just to the Canadian Space Agency, but to NASA itself. And quite honestly, you're kind of blown away at first because, you know, you're responding to an RFP for a piece of work and you've in my career, I'd already done that hundreds of times. Mm. So you aren't, you know, you're not, you're, it's just another company. And then you start to sort of uh, unpack that and see what it's like. And for me, because I came from journalism, you're always sort of looking at what's, what's the size of the story? What are the implications? How important is this really? Right. Um, and, you know, I've done the world's largest video gaming conferences. I've done that kind sure. of thing where there's a self-importance to yeah. it. But there's a grander, there's there's something more important when you're dealing with space. And and Karis, what did you find it was like trying to make a, a bunch of engineers actually interesting to people? <laughs> well, I was lucky enough that my background was in, in biology and science. So, uh, you know, I think as far as adapting to the technology itself, that was always interesting. I think wrapping my head around the industry and how big it was and how many players were in it and that our responsibility was not only to take advantage of the event and going back to space and and what that could do just to generate coverage, but you so clearly had a grasp on how the work that we were about to do was going to inform the business and influence you know, the Department of National Defense and government in Canada and in the U.S. Um, And the way that you brought that to us, you know, really, even I was very young in my career. So to really understand in one of my very first accounts, the importance of what I was doing um, and that it wasn't just putting out a press release. It wasn't just setting up an interview. It was materially shaping a business and an industry. And it was important. And my role in it was important. Um, that was uh, incredible. Uh, that often, to Hugh's point, you know, a lot of the time when you're working with clients, there's a self-importance. But you're not necessarily laddering up to a bigger ecosystem and a bigger vision that fundamentally matters. Yeah. Well, Return to Flight was was a, definitely a moment in time, I think. Um, for everybody. I, I remember saying at the time, um, you know, when we when we finally were getting close to launch, that it was, I felt a little bit like it was um, having had a tragedy in the family. 
and and yeah. you just wanted to show up and figure out what you could do to make it better. Um, uh, you know, because the, the shuttle program really was a very large extended family, um, and and return to flight was a it was a tragedy. There's no question that it was, but it was also something that that everybody felt that you know the shuttle program and NASA had to come back from. Um, it, it was a singular event in my career. I've never been in through anything like it. And I certainly never been through anything that, that generated the kind of media interest. Um, you know, one of the things we did together, Hugh, was you and I went to what was supposed to be uh, the, the first launch. Uh, we didn't end up actually getting to see a launch, yeah. but um, it's the first time I've ever experienced a media event of that size. I'm sure you guys do all the time, uh, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what the atmosphere was like when we arrived at the, the media village uh, at the Kennedy Space Center for the launch. It was a circus. It was, it was, you know, by definition of media circus. And, you know, and that's, you know, again, we're talking 2005. So you don't, there's no social Mm. media here, right? So it's, it's still, it's still sort of old school practices, if you will. They're real time to give you a sense so my job and role down there, by this point in time, we had sort of developed what the story was. You were the spokesperson. You had done a number of media interviews um, and, and pieces like that. And the real point of us being down there, uh, or at least to have me down there, was to help gain, help NetTech gain exposure on the international stage for the potential of the business through what, what you were doing for Return to Flight. Um, there is a building where they house the media there. Um, there's no Wi-Fi. You have to be hardwired. So the media have to go and plug in and they have to reserve a desk. And there weren't enough desks. There were journalists sitting in the hallways. Um, and in fact, the Globe and Mail sent down a journalist so last minute there was nowhere for him to work. And in the spirit of, you know, <laughs> I sure. knew him uh, and I had worked at the Globe and in the spirit of trying to, you know, garner favorable coverage we offered up a spot for him to work out of the you know 10 by 10 spot we had rented as an office while we were down um i was trying to uh basically pitch cold pitch international journalists and so you know i had a target list and i thought okay i'll go into the daily briefings or the twice a day briefings and just as their name gets called out i'll identify them when the briefing's sure. done, I'll go over and chat with them. Those briefing rooms were so full, you couldn't move. So I had to actually watch the briefings on NASA TV to match faces really? and names and then run out <laughs> afterwards and chase them down. That. And the USA Today person, oh, yeah. So the plan I went in with didn't work because there was right. so much media on hand. You physically couldn't move through right. quick enough to do that. Um, the USA Today person basically refused to talk to me because he was filing eight times a day live to the website, which was crazy. Right. Nobody else was doing that. So he was too busy to get, he was too busy telling the story to get the story. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Right. And he's, and to be fair, yeah. the time he's, he's USA today. And so you're just trying to get him. The other thing, and you've touched on this a bit was um, there yeah. was a nervousness yeah. in the air, right? Because, we look at it now and go, you know, the flight did not go up. You know, it was supposed to go up on uh, July 13th. It didn't go up till the 26th because of weather scrubs. And, you know, but you didn't, 
You didn't know. You didn't know no, if the problem no, had really been there, fixed. There, yeah, there was definitely, you know, there were a lot of people who wondered whether or not we were going to have the problem again. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And that so that was the that was, you know, it was a little bit like a NASCAR yeah, race. Yeah. I hate to say it, but it's like, you know, there's there's that edge to it. And, you know, there was absolutely no joy in that. Um, but I think that's partially what attracted yeah. Yeah. so well, and, much and I, I've there. told the story before about that first scrub. I, I don't remember what the technical problem was, but it was a technical problem. And because I just I remember that I was literally lying on the floor. We'd been there since like three in the morning and it was now middle of the afternoon. Uh, and there had been, um, you know, the countdown mm-hmm. was taking a while. And I remember I was lying on the floor and whatever I heard in the room next to us, there was somebody from Lockheed or Boeing or somebody who actually had the, the, the loops where you could hear. Um, and, and I don't know what I heard. I still to this day yeah. cannot tell you what I heard. All I knew know is that I knew as soon as I heard it that we weren't launching. And I literally jumped up, grabbed the phone. You're looking at me like I'm out of my mind. And I grabbed the phone because we didn't have a cell phone. And I called my wife and I said, we're scrubbed. I'm coming home. All of which happened before the NASA TV announced that it was actually scrubbed. So, um, yep. Oh, yeah. And I know we'll probably talk about this a bit as we go here, but it's it's incredibly intimidating to go down there because it is quite sure. foreign, right? If you're not of the space program, and it's not like right. I'm a young engineer who might know something, you know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a PR guy who tomorrow might be pitching right. doing something totally different, right? So to get pulled into this, and there were journalists like that as well, right? Who were there on the space or there, and it was it made it. it you know, it made it difficult for the journalist to function too. Um, I know one, obviously, one thing you and I both know, and Karis played a part of it, that happened down there was um, mm-hmm. the New York Times had two reporters down there, and I had been monitoring, you know, figuring out who they were. And one guy, John Schwartz, who was, I think, was the um, science writer. And I think he still is to this day. Uh, I went up to him after one of the one of the briefings, and you know, when you do this, it's a not that I have much practice of this, but it's like walking up to somebody yeah, right. at a bar and kind of going, hey, you know, I have something you might be interested in. And they um, so I walked up to him and I, I introduced myself and said I was with Neptech and quickly talked about what Neptech was doing for the flight. And he just cut me off and he was super stressed. As it turned out, right. his laptop had, right. laptop had died that day, so he couldn't file. And. Um, he's no, like, I don't know no, what no, I'm going to do because no. you can't just leave. You're through layer security, all of these things. It's a very, it's unlike almost any media environment I've been in. Um, and he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he sort of blurted this out. And I looked at him and I just said, <laughs> you can have my laptop. And he looked at me, he's like, well, don't, don't you need it? And I was like, no. Right. Right. And yes, not exactly. as much as I needed him to meet you. So yeah. it was interesting, right? They have they actually have ethics. And so he couldn't borrow it, but he could rent it. So we did a yes. deal and he rented my laptop for two or three days. Yes. But I made him come to our little office yeah. to right. to pick it up. And in doing so, you met him. And so that, you know, sure. all the planning in the world, all the messaging on the world, everything else in the world, and I needed uh John's laptop to break to kind of get what I wanted to do. And and in the end, we actually got a story in the New York Times. 
Well, we did, right? And, and it didn't show up when it got scrubbed. So I thought, oh, that never worked. And then on the 26th, he actually wrote me and said, hey, you might want to check today's paper. And so, wow. I mean, obviously it's, you know, in, in the profession, our profession, that's, you know, that's a, that's a man yeah. ever kind of moment. one thing that means, yes. Well, so then I go to get it and it's a front page story, right? Yeah. And, and the thing was the power of the front page of the New York Times, because it's syndicated and it is online, then that story gets shared. And then Forbes oh, yeah. picked it up and did a story. And then the inbound came in and yeah. Karis had to start dealing with it back. Well, so, yeah, so this, you know, I was going to say, and then, I mean, that was the story of getting back to flight, but actually the, you know, the, the story lived on for, for a long time after that, Karis. And I remember, um, remember working with you a lot in, in a variety of places. We, we, we did scan the shuttle uh, for a number of flights and we did find things. And, um, and, you know, so there was a lot of medium interest actually after return to flight. And, and that's where you spent a lot of your time actually was, uh, was after the, fact yeah there was a i worked on uh 14 missions in total is that uh, right we, yeah wow. wow yeah 14 um and what was interesting was as you referenced earlier there was so much education after the fact because people were oh but there's still foam there's mm-hmm. still things are happening and i remember so much once we did safely get get up uh, into space was the curiosity around the foam and what that actually meant. Sure. Um, and so I don't think I breathed for the first year of working with you guys yeah. because yeah. there was always that question, that apprehension, um, you right. know, of, of right. going into space using the technology, right. um, which really interesting. But from a media perspective, uh, you know, the landscape was starting to shift. That was really when we were starting to see a lot of consolidation in media. Um, and so once the big hype of, of return to flight happened, then it became, oh, it's old hat. Yeah. You know, it was amazing how quickly the people were like, oh, yeah, Neptet, we already know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I remember, you know, my famous last words at the beginning of one mission, we, we for some reason, we did an interview with somebody. And I remember saying the fateful words, a good day in space is a boring day in space. Yeah. And then that was the flight where we actually ended up with some serious damage to the tiles. And, and, and I remember talking to that. I, I think you got me back with that same reporter later on saying, yeah, well, not so boring. <laughs> that, that's exactly it. You know, and we were, I think very lucky, particularly in Ottawa, we had some really great reporters yes. uh, that we were working with, um, you know, which was exciting. It was always exciting to bring them over to NEPTEC um, and not only to get to meet the astronauts, of course, especially after the missions yes. when they would do Tour, um, but even to just be there to watch watch the launch right. uh, on the on the big screen uh, in the common room right. at Neptune, um, you know everyone. You sort of think back to the Kennedy yeah. days and, and all the old footage that you have of people parking their cars and sitting in apprehension yes. and anticipation. That never ever goes no. away. No. Replicate that with every even, mission. Even, um, when I worked at the Johnson Space Center, which was before Columbia but after Challenger, no one ever left the room mm-hmm. until the solid rocket separated. Nobody. Yeah. I, you know, because that was the moment when Challenger, of course, blew up. Uh, and so it was like a thing. Like when you, when you went to watch a launch in one of the common rooms, everybody stayed until that point. Then they start to drift away. But until then, everybody stayed. Yeah. So, so, uh, but speaking of astronauts, Karis, the, and speaking of media circus, um, you, hmm. you got to spend a little bit of time uh, organizing what it's like to do PR for uh, for those who really do get to space by leaving the planet. Uh, I'm sure you have some stories about that. 
Oh, yes. I, I know where you're going with this. Uh, Mr. Hadfield, um, who was the first astronaut I got to meet. Um, and I met him in what, as a very junior PR person, it was terrifying, sure. honestly. There was so much pressure that I felt that I needed to be professional and understand my role. And here I was not only representing you and representing my team at High Road, but now I'm about to meet somebody who has actually been to space, which internally as just a science nerd in general is obviously like meeting a rock star. Um, but he is there for a very serious thing. And, and you had a relationship with Chris, obviously, for quite some time. And the thing that I really appreciated about you as a client is you really understood that the power of PR was going to help your business, but that there were messages that we could use and deliver into the market to really advance the investment in space right. in Canada. And I remember the first time we met Chris, we had this in mind. We had a very specific strategy and Chris was going to be there and, okay, Chris, you know, we're walking, he was late and we were walking towards, he's got his entourage, we're walking towards the media. Chris, these are the three messages that you need to deliver. We need you to deliver them. And the, here's why this is the rationale. Yes, yes, no problem. I've got it. And with that, within about eight feet, he turns and he presents himself to the media and the lights are there and he delivers it as if he's known it all along. And it's the most casual conversation and he's on point. And that for me, I will never forget that because that for me was, oh, this is what a spokesperson yes. is. This, this is how you yeah. deliver a message. And this is truly how you change yeah. an yeah. industry. No, that, that, that was one of the things. And one of the things that I've always uh, always had about working with the, the one thing I, I have said before about, about um, the magic that, uh, that Chris brings to anything is that he is a genuinely exceptional person doing genuinely exceptional things who manages to make it feel absolutely normal, which makes the rest of us feel like we could be him when we couldn't be, but, but, but he has a genius at may, at drawing people in and making them feel like the most extraordinary thing that he's doing and talking about is somehow something accessible to the average person. Well, and you know, what's funny is, I luckily have been able to meet Chris several times over uh, in my career now. Um, when he came back right. from the space station, he of course launched his book. And I, I was at Kobo at the time. Um, and we were very lucky that he was willing to do some video content with us to promote his book and, and talk about digital uh, reading right. and all of those things. And he came into the video shoot. And unfortunately, I had a conflict and uh, wasn't able to be there right on time. And I walked in about halfway into his shooting and uh, we hadn't seen him in years. Uh, but he looked and he said, Ian Christie, NetTech, how are you doing? You know, he just, yeah. I, I, that to me is the yeah. incredible power yeah. that he has. Well, and you know, I don't know if you remember this, Ian, but um, he definitely could put you at ease. The only time I spent with him was when right. you and I were in Florida for, for return to flight that didn't, go and while he had a role he was obviously not in that flight and he was on the ground and because of where our office was set up um he yes. he could drop by and hang out and he would he'd, he'd work with you and so all of a sudden on a regular daily basis there was um you me the globe reporter who was there and he would chris would pop in and I mean, this is the other thing that starts to happen when you're down there and that flight, there's oh, guys yeah. in flight suits all the time. And so it's 
there's one, there's another. But he was, I mean, he was the same guy then, I think, probably that he is today, yeah. based on what you had said to me. And, and we we talked to him just a bit in the work you've done with him. Um, one of the things that made it, you know, you asked, was it, yes. was it, it was a circus down there. Getting food could be very difficult. So every day the Globe Reporter and I would, you know, go off, find food, yes. get rained on, come back. And then one day there was a food truck. It was terrible. We'd gotten burritos and we're sitting there sopping wet in this office eating. And I think we got you some as well. So you weren't sopping wet. And Chris, um, Chris kind of walks up and saunters in and kind of looks us sure. up and down eating these awful, unhealthy, you know, burritos. And he says, uh, he's like, Oh, that's healthy. And yeah. but in a very funny kind of way. And this is how relaxed I became around him was I had noticed in the number of days yeah. we had been there, there was a fridge and every yeah. day there was a two liter bottle of diet Coke right. with a sticker that said Hadfield on it. And so I turned yeah. to you when he said healthy, you know, healthy lunch. And I said, I refuse to take dietary direction from somebody who drinks Diet Coke, right, right. like two liters of Diet Coke every day. And the room <laughs> went a little quiet. And I thought, I've overstepped my boundary. And you, yeah. you yeah. didn't jump in. And that had me concerned. And this all happened in half a second. But the brain is now going, yeah, right. oh, I have to go home now. I've, I've done it. <laughs> and he looks at you. He goes, I like him. And he walks yeah, it's an entirely, uh, entirely plausible story. Well, that... And you, yeah. and you have this sigh of relief. And that's what I realized. You know, you, you come back from these experiences and talk to family or friends and they go, oh, what's it like? And it's like, like you say, it's a lot of these people. And this is the thing, right? Working in the space industry is working with a lot of people yes. have a shared passion. And when you get brought into that and you understand that there is this, especially when it's about space flight, a singular bigger goal and everybody yeah. is contributing in some way. I don't know if I ever felt a part of something where right. you had a, had a role to play and especially on, on, for me on return to flight, because what I was doing there was not actually contributing to the safety or the return. I was there to help, you know, to help you right. potentially grow your business through, but, but it, you know, it does, you can't be a part of something like that without it changing your perspective on a lot of things. And, and, you know, we have talked about that before. It's kind of the, 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 the reason that I wanted to do this episode and talk to you guys. So maybe, maybe Karis, you've, you've talked to me about that before. How did the experience of working on the space program, you know, change your, your perspective on other things? I, I mean, honestly, it's informed, the last 15 years of my career, uh, not only from a technology perspective, because of course the the, the camera right. system used LIDAR. And so I had to learn about that, uh, you know, and then that actually through your work when, when NetTech started doing some proof of concepts around helicopter landing systems using the same technology, that parlayed into me working for military right. organizations and training and simulation. And then when I worked for Kobo, it had nothing to do with my PR skills. In fact, right. I had none in the consumer electronics space, but the CEO, Mike Servinus at the time, had also worked for NASA. So we had the shared love um, and really understood what it was like to think bigger, to uh, really push the limits of things um, and, and sort of, you know, act locally, think globally. Those were shared values that I had learned very on in my career. And, and funnily enough, fast yeah, forward now to Interspace and we use live. Are and some of our sensors. So 
Yeah, the, the technology has sort of also informed me. But I think more than that, uh, there is a real, uh, and Hugh touched on it, the sense of awe, the sense mm-hmm. of working in something that is bigger than you and understanding, fundamentally understanding that whether you are the person who writes a press release or you are the engineer right. or you are the accountant or the yes. procurement person or the actual astronaut, it doesn't matter who you are. Your role is so important and right. you must act with excellence. And by you being excellent, you are enabling someone else to be excellent at what they do. Um, and that, for me, has completely been the underpinning I, of I my I don't know career. if I could have come up with a better description of, of what I think Terranauts is about. So, um, Hugh, you're, you're welcome to try and top that. After that, I did some work in the fashion industry, and it wasn't as fulfilling. I, I, Karis and I have talked about this before and the notion of, of being in awe, and it's you know, the thing for me is it's getting to work with NEPTEC, getting to be part of the space program um, is is the highlight of my career. And it's, it's in, I think it's a little bit. We peaked early, really, is what you're saying. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were what, a week in, apparently? Yeah. I had no idea. The good news is I yeah, seem right. to be losing my memory. So this may be the only memory I have for my career. No, it's, you know, I do stop. I track launches. I watch what's going on. I, you know, you think about yes. not the individual people, but the mechanism of what it takes. Yes. You, you understand it at a deeper level when you've been part you of it. You understand it at a deeper level. And I think I, I'd written you at one point. I mean, I got to play Terranaut for a while. We worked with you for a couple of years, but when we came back from that, Kara says, you could, I mean, she did 14 launches. Yes. I wasn't involved day to day nearly as much. because no, no. Chris was quite eager to take over and run with it. Um, and so, you know, I feel more like I got to be a Terranaut for a while. And that, that was an incredible experience. Yeah. Um, I, I would, I think everybody should, I, I think everybody should, get to have that kind of opportunity right. of feeling in your career. Right. Well, that, that I, I'm going to stop you there because again, I don't think there's a better way of summing up what this show is supposed to be about, which is to put more people in touch with that feeling. Um, I've, you know, given talks before where I call it the attractive power of the big idea that mm-hmm. as human beings, uh, we have an innate need to be bigger of some, to be part of something bigger than ourselves and, and, um, hopefully that that should be something constructive um, and something yeah. where we have to bring our best game in order for everybody to succeed. Um, and that makes us work a lot harder than just working for ourselves. And, and that is what Terranauts is about is to talk about what it's like to do that and, and to celebrate the fact that, that um, you can do it in lots of ways, but the space program is one great way to do it, that when you have to get to space, you can't do it alone and you got to bring your A game. Um, and just because you don't happen to step on a spacecraft doesn't mean you don't actually get to go there and feel that. And and that's what Terranauts is about. And and you guys have 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 epitomized that for me today. And I'm really glad that you were able to be on the show. Uh, thanks, Karis. Thanks you for being part of Terranauts. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. 
If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.